Welcome to The Tech That Connects Us, a podcast dedicated to the stories of leaders in the technology industries that bring us closer together, specifically content and media, satellite and news space, connectivity and cybersecurity. Your hosts are me, John Clifton, Laurie Scott and Will Trenchard, the founders of Nuco, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm focused on these exact industries. We love being a part of them and we're excited to share these stories with you. Welcome to the Tech That Connects Us. Your host today are me, Tom Wilding, and Andrew Ball, both consultants within our satellite and new space group. And we are delighted to be joined today by Tina Gator. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's indeed a pleasure. Excellent. Um, Tina is the chief is the chief commercial officer at Minaric uh, and president of their subsidiary group, Minaric USA. In this dual role, she leads the efforts to position Minaric as the preferred laser communication provider for aerospace application for both government and commercial markets. So quite a significant undertaking. It At is. A... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine. Um, and also, congratulations. At the recent satellite show in DC earlier this year, Tina's contribution to the aerospace industry was rightly recognized by both public and industry peers alike when she was voted via Satellite's Satellite Executive of the Year. So congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. That was rather unexpected, but I'm (laughs) honored and flawed and all of those other words is really, (laughs) it was pretty shocking. Um, I'm still, you know, kind of, Pinching myself and seeing, um, I think seeing my face on a magazine cover just you know, it was kind of like, oh wow! I Look, used to like these magazines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did. I ordered several copies for the family at home. And then uh, I, I hope they're now framed and up on the mantelpiece. I think they might be in the UK. <laughs> But the ones in the office went straight into a drawer just because, you know, it's uh, a locked anyway. filing cabinet. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Just so that, you know, the team aren't going to be like, look at her on her face in the magazine. <laughs> no, they're very supportive. I think the entire Minaric team was absolutely flawed. It was amazing for all of us. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it, it may have my face, but it's really for all of us. Brilliant. Well, a hugely prestigious award. So, so yeah, well done again. Um, and before before your current role, uh, your career has taken you from Boeing to Panasonic Avionics to Yarsat and sounds like all around the world while doing so. Um, so welcome. We cannot wait to get to know a bit more about you. Sure. Happy to. To kick things off, we're going to go back to the beginning. So how did you make it from... Kingston University in London to the sunny west coast of the US. Wow, that's um, that's going a little bit back, but let, let me take you actually a little bit further back than that. Um, uh, going up in uh, Blighty, um, wasn't much happening in space around that time. And um, in fact, you're probably one of those weird people at school who wanted to be an astronaut or launch stuff that went into space. And that was one of, that was me. But um, at the age of 16, I did find my group of like-minded individuals. And we went to the first ever space school in the UK, in Kent. And um, believe it or not, many of those folks are still my friends. They're in the space industry. 
And that really helped me figure out, you know, that there are others who are thinking like me, want to launch things into space, want to launch themselves into space. It used to be eggs on a rocket, but I really (laughs) want to, I really do want to be a payload into space. And I, I say that every chance I get. So if a billionaire is listening, I could I could fill that role for them. <laughs> Elon, <laughs> Jeff, quite you heard awesome, it here first. <laughs> you know, Elon, Jeff, Sir Richard. I mean, I'm, I'm very <laughs> not off. fussy. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think you know I could add a bit of a diversity play with the engineering background and a global influence. There you go. What more could they ask for? But really, that's how um, you know I started, and that's where I met my um, future professor at Kingston. And you know, I was applying to various other um, universities, and I thought I knew I was I wasn't a scientist per se. I was more hands-on, had an engineering mindset. So very early on, I kind of knew that. And um, Kingston was a great place. So this is how I ended up at Kingston studying aerospace engineering you know i think it was one of four of four girls on that university course and um amazing one of them you know i'm still very much um in touch with and i think you all know very well as well so uh it's a, it's a small community so that's how it all started in kingston very good very good well you know magic to kick things off from there um, i'm going to pass you over to andrew who's going to delve a bit deeper into the past brilliant thanks tom and and Tina, just wanted to say fantastic to, to have you with us today. Really appreciate you giving us your time. Um, so first question we'd like to start with is who or what has been your biggest influence in your career in getting you to where you are today? So um often get asked that really, really deep question, but I don't think there's one specific person per se or instant. Um, you know, I was born and brought up in Africa, in Kenya. Um, lots of cha- times to, you know, travel around the country with my dad um, and stargaze. So it was all about, you know, what's out there. And when you come from a sort of a very patriarchal kind of family or culture, you know, and if you don't fit into that mold of learning to sew and cook and then you're not a boy, then it becomes kind of what do you do? But um <laughs> But I've always had a very mathematical, analytical brain and like to build things. And so um, the whole realization of going to space was really um, something that I knew I could do more when I arrived in England um, to start my secondary school. And that was mainly through, you know, following what the early days of, you know, the NASA programs and things. Right. So the UK didn't have much, but every magazine, every book I could get hold of focused on the space shuttle program, I did. And then I thought, well, how do I shape my career? And then realized I wasn't a scientist who was going to do experiments on board a space shuttle. So I thought, oh, fighter pilots, that's who they hire as astronauts. And (laughs) I thought, oh, I'll join the Royal Air Force. And went down that path of exploring that. I was a cadet, you know, in, in school. And um, then I found out that you couldn't actually fly fighter planes as a woman in that era. And so I said, yeah, during my time, you couldn't, and you could, they were very kind. They're like, you could get into a transport aircraft. And I was like, ah, (laughs) not (laughs) for me. 
I have a path. I'm going to fly the shuttle. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how, you know, um, just different um, people along the way, um, you know, my professors, uh, friends who I, I made at the age of 16 at the space school looking at, um, and if you all recall, Britain had his first um, competition during that time when the cosmonauts were being selected and Helen Charman flew with the Russian Mir space station. So that was the time of growing up in, in, in the UK when you looked up to, you know, people like her and Clive Smith and others who were like, you know, trying to really, you know, pave their way into space exploration. And um, so I think it was several instances and opportunities that uh, either I came across or cultivated. um, And that's really what's led me to where I am. Fantastic answer. Thank you. Um, And I mean, you've obviously had a a pretty illustrious career. um, So it might be difficult just to kind of pick one, but is there anything that you can sort of pick out as, as being a real pivotal moment in your career? Wow, I've I've been really fortunate that from you know a low level engineer getting hired into the Boeing company um, originally to work on the X thirty eight program, but that didn't come through, and it was actually Rockwell Space System that was acquired by Boeing, and had some great mentors there, and they saw that you know fine, I had the engineering skills, but I had people skills that were more important. And where I could look at the bigger picture of doing international collaborations. So I think having these um, opportunities sort of in front of me, but then knowing that if I put myself forward for them, um, you know, I, I just have lucked out. You know, it's hard work, but, you know, the the critical thing is having those opportunities presented. So at Boeing, I, I like to tell people that it's funny. They think, you know, you work for a really big company and you're like a small cog in a big wheel. But I've, I had great opportunities to start some very cutting edge uh, projects in the SATCOM space, you know, using satellites to build services. Um, so I love to, you know, as I was using my connectivity on United flying over here today, <laughs> I was like, ha, ah, I had something to do with that. <laughs> I know? did that. <laughs> you know, I was like, I had something to do with that way early on. And then again and again. And so, you know, I'm always like doing speed tests. Don't tell my other friends, but I do speed <laughs> tests on the uh, on the bandwidth and stuff on 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 any flight I take, just to see if what they're saying is really true. Um, so many firsts, um, many challenges, whether it was at Boeing or at Panasonic. Um, you know, um, have no software background, but led a whole group there building software applications for in-flight products and putting the first ever developer program together for Panasonic that would allow third parties to develop apps on, on on an app for airplane use, right? So I've had a lot. And then, you know, going to the Middle East and, and building a mobility calm business for Yasat. Um, to me, all of those things are opportunities that were presented that I jumped on. Well, uh, you say you were fortunate. It sounds like you made a lot of your own luck there, which is uh, which is also very important. So um, and, and last question, as we kind of look into the past, 
other than than Mynarik's uh, uh, laser communication solutions, of course. But what technology or innovation do you think has had the biggest am- impact on the space and satellite industry within the last sort of 10 years? I think simply, you know, ability to do onboard processing, that's been really key. And that's going to become even more important. I think satellites um, getting smaller Um, more capable. I used to remember debates on how much power is generated from solar arrays, you know, whether satellites are fueled one way versus electric propulsion, but just shrinking their size because different technologies, footprints have gotten um, smaller or highly capable. Those are some of the things that I think, um, you know, we have to watch closely. And, and Lasercom's been around for a couple of decades. I mean, I I was on the periphery of all things Lasercom during the Teledesic um, constellation, the early um, yeah. ideas of constellations that we were going to interconnect these 900 plus satellites. Remember when 900 was a big number? <laughs> <laughs> and now clearly it's not, you know. Um, so, so when that was a big number. But yeah, I think just being able to do more with um, less from a side standpoint on satellites, um, etc., has been critical. Um, and then also just having um, new players into the market and not just tr- the usual, you know, traditional companies that were waiting around for government funding to push things forward. So I think a combination of technology, people who have, you know, ambition and adventure um, and have a can-do different attitude um, has really propelled us forward as an industry. I think really interesting that you mentioned competition there. Uh, you know, competition certainly breeds innovation. And I think that's why we've seen such a massive growth in in the solutions and, and certainly opening up end user verticals with the advent of new space. So uh, look, really, really interesting. Get your perspective there. We've sort of touched on the past. Um, that leads us nicely to the present. So, Tom, over to you. Kick things off. Tina, how do you see the current state of the new space market? I'm super excited about it. I think, you know, um, we're getting beyond um, paper pitches. Um, I don't know if you guys have done the whole um, Silicon Valley VC route or, you know, the UK fundraising or here in Europe and on mainland Europe, there's a lot of, um, uh, it's picking up the whole new space scene, but I've witnessed it all. I've witnessed paper projects that were able to raise eight, 10 million on, you know, a pitch deck of 10 slides to, um, you know, burning through and, and, and crashing to some real nuggets of technologies and companies that have come through all of that because there was the fundamentals were correct, you know, whether it's new launches, new satellite builders who thought about 3D printing things, or, you know, um, a San Francisco startup saying, I'm going to build um, geosatellites that are smaller, but you don't have to pay for them. I'm going to charge them uh, on, a, on a service model uh, per bit standpoint. So I thought that was exciting. Um, and then, you know, going forward into the future, I think just some of the Earth observation, um, you know, constellations are finally uh, working through business models that help pay for some of those early investments that maybe governments have done into them or or they've just been trying to find the final 
um, value proposition. And uh, what's interesting is they they all sort of many, not all, sort of decided, oh well, we want to deliver this service, but guess what? We're going to build our own satellites. And I always reflect on that, and I wonder why are they doing that? Is it because a bigger corporation isn't going to take them seriously and say, look, mm. I'm going to, I don't know, go sell some SAR imagery. I mean, you put the TV on today and you can see what all that imagery is being used for very, very good reasons. And maybe 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been taken seriously by a large satellite builder. So guess what? Mm. You know, the whole building it in-house, vertically integrating. I'm just fascinated that that's how new space is, is just deciding to break some of those um, norms and heading into a direction of if a big player is not going to take us seriously, well, we'll just do it. We'll, we'll, we'll build satellites on a table. Yeah. Finding solutions in challenges. Couldn't agree more. You touched on some of those technology nuggets you sort of spoke about. Are there any particular technology nuggets that are having a really significant impact that you see across satcoms and connectivity? Oh, funnily enough, I think laser comp. <laughs> Never. I don't know. I had to get that plug in. I had to get that plug in. Talking to a laser comp exec, right? Um, but no, honestly, I think um, when you look at the capex involved in um, really standing up some of these constellations, if you're a small plan, you need all these ground stations or you need so many satellites and what better way and you're collecting all this amazing imagery what better way to interconnect these um, satellites by moving data between them and then you know moving it down through an optical channel um, uh, in a very secure way and in large bandwidth um, so you can you don't have to do the data processing on board. You can move it to the edge, and the edge could be on the ground, or it could be on a different data relay satellite. So I think the promise of Lasercom is now, I like to say, and you know we've tinkered around with it, we've proven out the use cases, it works, and now it's about can you build the products, scale them, and make them affordable. That's what we're doing. So. I think, you know, you couple Lasercom with a really good onboard processor. That's a killer, killer solution right there. Yeah. Great team. Great team. Quite, uh, quite dangerous. Um, okay. And you touched as well on Constellations um, and the impact they're having on our industry currently. What do you see as the big opportunities with those Constellations? And on the flip side of that, where do you see the challenges and limitations coming? I'm thinking the constellation market has always been there, right? Whether, you know, three satellite, you know, deployed thing is called a constellation, I don't know. But when you when you look at the constellations that have been um, already deployed, whether it's OneWeb Gen 1 or, the, you know, what Starlink has done and some of the Earth observation constellations, you know, that are out there with Planet and smaller IoT constellation swarm and, and and others of you know the satellite and other companies um who you wouldn't have heard of 10 years ago are putting up these okay. amazing constellations. It's because they've figured out where the end user problem is. I think many times people in our industry get fixated on the tech 
and not necessarily on where is the end user service, where's the benefit and where's the business case. So although I'm way down in the value chain in the company that I'm in, putting together a subsystem, I've been on the other side in terms of developing services, Mm. getting services out. So I know it's all about cost per bid. How do you get people to pay for their services? Um, You know, everybody likes to talk in, well, there's 4 billion people who are not connected in the world. And, and I'm like, yeah, but do you know how they're going to pay for this? Do you know, do you even know how to reach them? You know, it's it's great talking in those large numbers, but have you tried to reach somebody in a particular country who may have a 3G phone and can't actually, doesn't have a credit card? So how do you expect them to pay for the service? Mm-hmm. And so these are the kinds of things I think the industry and the constellation industry specifically um, needs to examine more. Are you putting up a constellation because it's really cool and you can build a bunch of satellites and you're going to use the latest launch vehicle? Or are you going to help me when I'm driving a vehicle to really tell me what's happening around me or tell me when my vehicle needs something, you know? And, and those are the kinds of things, you know, mobility use cases are important. Are you really going to make telemedicine a reality, you know, beyond just a computer screen. Um, where are those final use cases that will that are economical enough um, for someone at the end of the chain to pay for it? And you're not relying on just simple government subsidies, which are needed to kick things off in the early days, whether it's to spawn um, technology development or initial deployments. Um, in a particular country, whether you're building a launch pad or whether you're yeah. spawning a technical industry in a particular country for jobs. But at the end of the day, if your service isn't on par with the terrestrial infrastructure, then you're always going to hurt. It's really interesting you mentioned, because uh, there is so much cool technology in the satellite and new space industries. Very interesting you mentioned focusing on the opportunity and working backwards rather than starting with the tech um and, and a totally totally valid point um okay and, and finally um what do you see as being the most significant opportunity within satcoms and connectivity right now i think it's the marriage of true mesh networks right it's the ability where you know finally the the terrestrial telecom operators are either getting into the satcom space or are recognizing um, our the team our team as being um, you know relevant within their their network infrastructure uh, complementary um, whether it's the the horrible instances of Tonga etc happening um, but also with needs in places like Ukraine etc right so I think the opportunity is really a marriage of networks um, because at the end of the day the end user doesn't care where their bits are coming from they want to be connected and they want the data um, yes. so I think we need to get together as an industry. Uh, you know, you're seeing movement from, you know, telecom executives moving into satellite um, companies. You're seeing satellite company executives moving into various different telecom uh, plays. And I think just um, a, a knowledge transfer, uh, best practices transfer between these industries is um, is key to bringing us all together. And then you've got the likes of, you know, Amazon who 
was a you know consumer business to consumer uh, play going into you know Amazon Web Services. Wow, I mean there is they're, they're running data for a whole bunch of satcom company and earth observation companies through that network and it's brilliant and then you have Kuiper and then you have you know that whole launch vehicle that's like a vertical integration happening there in front of us so I think the opportunity is a true integration and interoperability of some of these networks through various standards including you know when players like us come up with lasercom products, you know, we need to be able to talk to other products. So I think having been part of standard setting as a company, um, I think that's a real step forward. And I think it's just a, a real good way to capitalize on the market that's in front of us. And I, I suppose further collaborations past just backhaul as, you know, as the obvious one. Great. And I'm going to pass you over to Andrew, who's going to leap into the future. Yeah, so we've we've looked to the past. We've spent a bit of time in the present. Nowhere else to go other than the future. Um, so first question, uh, where do you see the industry going in, in sort of the next few years? And how do you see kind of Minaric fitting into the future of the industry? So I think the industry is getting into maybe the second generation in some respects. We talked about Constellation, Gen, Gen 1s are sort of flying. Some people are about to get into Gen 1, um, are modifying their um, Constellation plans, whether it's technology has surpassed them, they've had frequency rights, etc. cetera. Um, to people really saying, oh, well, we will learn from Gen 1, the satellites are getting older now, but how do we make Gen 2 more efficient? And that's, you know, where we come in. We provide, you know, a, a technology capability through products that can make their capital um, investments overall in the aggregate a lot um, more efficient and so they can get more out of their you know single dollar euro you know pound spent um, so there's definitely there's definitely that in the next couple of years um, you know from our vantage point adoption of our technology whether it's in government or commercial constellation I think you're going to see you know just heads down people getting on doing that. The same thing across the launch industry. Launches are getting smaller. You've got, you know, I don't know, over 20 different launch companies out there who are trying to, you know, build smaller launches, more affordable launches. Um, and I think that's really smart because, you you know, the launch industry price has to go down so that more satellites can be launched to deliver the services you and I want. So I think, the next five years is going to be really exciting because not only are we pursuing that space to make things affordable, we're launching, we're not scared to launch things that are demonstrators, you know, whether it's a, a data relay satellite constellation that we're saying, hey, this is all about moving bits in, in, in space, right? That's the value we provide um, to really super cool imagery that's being taken and processed and moved to the edge. Um, but, you know, I've got to give hats off to, um, you know, the Space Development Agency. They really are pushing the envelope when it comes to the adoption of, um, of you know, Lasercom tech into their constellations. Um, they're helping pave the way and saying, we want this tech 
and we'll put it on, you know, whether it's in our demonstrator, Trans Zero, or whether our operational future systems. And when they did that, that had some of the other commercial constellation providers um, all excited because guess who they want to sell their capacity to, right? <laughs> so it kind of helps if you have the right terminals on board that you can talk to the government constellations or move data securely for them. Um, so I think it's an exciting time. I think the next two to five years is all about heads down, delivering on all of those investments that you've made. Um, and then the exciting stuff around exploration. I mean, who doesn't want to do that, right? I think, <laughs> I think you know, let's, I'm rooting for all of those missions because um, getting out there and exploring or getting back to the moon or going to Mars, I'm all for it. Slight aside question. Is that you putting your hands up as uh, one of those people first to Mars? Once again, shameless plug. I'm going to to repeat myself again and again until I get a phone call. (laughs) I can't quite afford a New York Times ad, but there is this really big um, uh, ad, you know, huge kind of TV screen board on ad placement right around. the Hawthorne area where I have my office and a certain other company is based. Yep. And I was wondering, like, if one day I could just buy space on that. <laughs> Take know, out a full say, month long billboard ad. Yeah, just, uh... and they take me <laughs> <laughs> ready to occupy Mars or something, you know. I, I, I was curious about how much that would cost, but maybe we could feed more people than just me trying to, you know, capitalize on my own um, ambitions there. So, well, um, you never know who's listening. So anyone out there, get in touch with yeah. Tina, if you can help. Uh, <laughs> I should start a crowdfunding exercise. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to see her go out of, out of space? You know? we'll, we'll get a Kickstarter set up for you when we finish this. That's Don't worry. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to go. I need my own brand campaign manager there. So. <laughs> Great. Okay. And so um, what's the next big goal, uh, big goal, sorry, for the company? Uh, any upcoming milestones that you're able to share with us? Um, yes. Um, so milestones for us are delivering on our exciting wins um, on the transport layer program. We've got a significant number of terminals um, to build um, uh, and deliver next year. Um, So our factory that's already equipped um, to produce about 2,000 terminals um, a year, that's kind of what it's set up for. Um, And, you know, we would go to a double shift or or whatever to, once I have the backlog for 2,000 terminals, that would be always an exciting thing to report. I don't yet. (laughs) But, you know, the team is working really hard. Um, We've got several... um, proposals coming um, down the pipeline. Um, And the best news is that, you know, we weren't really known a couple of years ago. We've had, we've been a company founded since 2009. And like I said, we've been working super hard. We've got an amazing founder and CTO, a fantastic CEO. And we've been doing a lot of things heads down. And the last couple of years, we've kind of 
put our heads up and say, we exist. This is how we want to turn, you know, I think our CEO says a project company into a product company. And so we're just going down that path. We, like I say, heads down, um, got to deliver. Um, you know, I'm I'm speaking to you from Germany. Um, I'll be here a couple of weeks. This is something I do every four weeks or so, spend a couple of weeks here, as well as manage the, the, the US operations. But my plan is to just take my, my computer to the factory floor, you know, sit there, hopefully not in everyone's way, and just really motivate the, the team, right? So we're all sort of roll up our sleeves attitude at this company. Perfect. And um, how long, if ever, I suppose, do you think it will be um, until we no longer see sort of ground space RF communications in favour of optical? I think they'll always be complementary. You you can't get optical calms through thick cloud. I mean, I'm staring out of the window today here in, in Munich, and I know at the top of my roof, we've got a link from our building to a telecom tower. And I think that's about, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know, 15 kilometers maybe. And I was just curious if that link is still up, right? Because the cloud looks kind of low to me. Mm. But um, I think it's always going to be complementary. And, you know, there are places where um, RF is, um, you know, required. And um, I like to do this demo demonstration when I'm on a panel sometimes, but I need to get better aids. But if you think of an RF beam as a, torch that you're beaming down you can see how you know the the array of the torch the light is quite wide now imagine if you're at a minute you know military installation and you're that's your signal you're lighting up a ton of space around your base you don't want that jammed or picked up and then you take a laser pointer which is very sharp narrow red, red dot and that pointed down on a facility from space to ground is much more secure. So if you look at things in that respect, um, those are things, uh, the, those technologies are, are, are very complementary. but Lasercom certainly has an advantage over RF, um, especially if you wanna to try to deploy some, some um, network solutions really quickly in environments that are con- conducive to that, that you don't have to spend, you know, millions in negotiating ITU spectrum rights and hiring top lawyers to to play on that behalf and lobbyists um, and, and, you know, sell spectrum and, and the like. You just use Lasercom. Like I say, if the environment is supportive of that, that's how you do it. Perfect. And last question for me for the moment. What's a personal goal that you hope to achieve within the next sort of 12 months? Space. Oh. I was going to say, obviously going to space. But, oh, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I want to see the hundreds of terminals that we have um, on order being readied for shipment. I want to see that happening. You know, I um, uh, that to me is going to be such an achievement for our our whole um, company. Um, I'd like one of the bigger, you know, commercial constellations um, to call and say, yeah, okay, we've decided, we've picked you, we want your tech. Um, So that's a phone call I'd love to get, you know, in the next few months this year, that sort of thing. Um, So 
but really, you know, heads down, focus on delivery um, while we continue, while the sales team continues to bring in new orders, um, because that's how we're going to fuel um, the industry as a whole. Um, our company with both footprints in Germany and in the United States, um, we have a tremendous young um, workforce complemented by some very experienced um, engineers, PhD scientists, um, etc. So um, it's always great to see the enthusiasm um, within the company. Fantastic. Well, look, we've, we've talked all things past, present and future. Um, <clears throat> now for something um, a little bit different, but something very, very close to our chests here. And I'm you know, sure you'll agree. Um, so, Tom, over to you for our sort of diversity and inclusion section. Absolutely. So you have touched on it a bit already. Tina, which you know, which we loved, and we're really keen to probe and delve a bit deeper into your into your thoughts on it. What are your views on diversity in our industry currently? Well, um, you know, when I think of diversity, it comes in many flavors to me. It's really not just about you know ethnicity, um, male, female, that sort of thing. To me, it's a diversity, um, and that's maybe because I'm female woman of color, et cetera, making it in this world. Not easy always, but doing my best. Um, but I think of diversity from all angles. I think of it from educational background. We're not snobs at our company. We look at all kinds of um, educational backgrounds, um, not necessarily all Ivy League kind of situations. Um, we look at diversity from industry segments that we draw from because it's great. We can all drink our own aerospace Kool-Aid and rotate around aerospace companies. But it's good to get that, you know, software engineer from a different sector. They say, well, why don't we do it like this? And you kind of scratch your head or some, someone from the car industry who says, well, this is how automation works, guys. We've figured it out, you know. So how about we look at it this way or so I think for me, diversity on a personal level, that's what I think about. But I, I, I know where you're coming from. On the diversity and inclusion in our company, um, I want it to be more prominent and not just the token representation. That to me is important. I don't want people parading the single individual as, oh, look, I've checked off my diversity box. That bothers me, you know, because yeah. I think um, it happens in our industry and, you know, people are hired as, you know, diversity officers in, in companies where they've got a big problem. Um, I, you know, I think the company here at Mineric, I think we've got 40 nationalities um, on record wow. um, at Brilliant. the company working. Um, you know, when I'm in Germany, I'm like, does anybody speak German? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> and, and, and and so, you know, it's it's kind of, it's great because we've got the best of the best working um, together. But as an industry, I, I certainly think we can do a lot more um, at the um, leadership level, at, at all levels, actually, whether it's mid-level, you know, senior level, executive level. Um, I'm often the singular person in a in a business meeting or, or, or an executive meeting in, in companies, um, starting to see that mold break um, a little bit, but it can't be the token few. And yeah. I think what's interesting is 
um, you know, women have to support each other. And, you know, I was really privileged um, recently. I, I became a member of the Chief Network. And, you know, that's really important to me um, to participate because I'm rubbing shoulder with some really smart, you know, women in many different industries. And I was it's like, excellent. wow, I would never have connected with you. And I'm learning um, about things that I can bring back into my industry from that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think diversity in all aspects is very important. We've got big things to do. We want to go occupy planets and go to different places. Uh, we mm. can't go with, you know, a dark ages mindset. No, no, absolutely. And what's really positive to hear is the winds of change are starting to happen. You know, it's, it's great that you, you mentioned that. What... Um, what do you think the industry can do to address some of those shortfallings at a you know, right across the spectrum, but particularly at a leadership level? Um, just, you know, I think, for example, you know, there are uh, country specific rules that are being set up on, you know, private companies having, um, you know, female representation on board seats and things like that, or um, sometimes state-specific in the U.S. are, are, are being set up. Um, I think it starts from that environment, working all the way down to when you've got a team leader in your organization that's been presented with 40 resumes, you know, um, and, and I'm, I'm getting used back used to the whole, you know, CVs in, in, in Europe have a picture. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Take that picture off. You know, um, lose the, the how old you are routine because, you know, why discriminate against age or why discriminate against, you know, your visual? Like, just put your talent and your experience down and let it speak for itself. Um, so I think all across the board, um, mentorship is key. I've never had a female mentor. It's always been male mentors. So I think women um, who are in leadership positions should maybe gather a few and help do the mentorship on an equal basis. Absolutely. Hopefully and Chief can help can help facilitate that. I think so. I think so. I was just looking through the membership network at um, a Chief and, you know, I, I'm just pleased to see that, you know, we've got you know, L3 Harris and Boeing and Northrop and other companies like that represented there. And so now it's about how does that penetrate across Europe? Because it's apparently a bigger problem here, you know. And so for me, um, you know, representing a German company, I'm really excited that the, the leadership at DLR is, you know, female. We've got an amazing space science minister here at Germany now who's really out there and, and wanting to do some great things. And at the European Commission level, we want to see representation. You know, the head of telecom directorate is a woman at ESA. Elodie is doing a fantastic job there. Um, so I think we're breaking the mold, but um, I sometimes look at some of these ministerial conferences or, or, or representations or even just panels and I go, wow, you couldn't find a single female to speak <laughs> on that topic in your company. Yeah, it's really interesting. But um, I always tell my colleagues, you know, the best way to tackle that is um, women control budgets at various companies. So make that a uh, priority at events you sponsor and, I, and go to. 
is to see equal representation. Um, What's qualified, a practical idea? Qualified yeah. and equal representation. That's all people look for. Brilliant. Thanks for your thoughts and feelings on, on a really important topic. Um, we've gone, you know, like we said, through the whole spectrum of time. Uh, we've touched on diversity and we're now going to get to know a bit more about you. So I'm going to pass you over to Andrew. <laughs> so look, I, we, I know we've learned quite a bit about you already, um, but a, really, a question we like to ask everyone, just to get a little bit more of a flavour of you as an individual, your perfect weekend, if such a thing exists how would you kind of, what would be the perfect use of your time over a weekend? I'd be at a spa in my robe speaking to no one. <laughs> That's, I don't think we've had that answer before. <laughs> so I said, no, no human interaction, no contact, unless just I'm you, getting, a spa. Unless I'm getting a massage. And but you don't want them to talk to you. That's no, the... <laughs> no, 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 that, that would be a sin. That, <laughs> for people who like to chatter, no, not happening. I'm with you on that. This might be my favourite answer to that question ever. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were going to hear something deep and meaningful, and then you get me saying... I want to be at a spa for the weekend, not speaking to anyone. You know, the perfect, <laughs> perfect portion food served to me healthy is good. And, you know, just relaxing so I can fuel myself for the following week. Perfect. Well, uh, next, next round of questions. It's going to delve a little bit deeper into you as well i have to say this is this is my favorite bit of, of the podcast um so tom over to you quick fire no cheating okay. uh london or los angeles london why um have you been to la recently i mean do i, I have like a girl that fits into la no <laughs> london it is Death row meal. I'm sorry. At death row meal. So the last meal you'd eat on earth. Oh, wow. That would be tandoori chicken. Good choice. That was my mum's mm. pregnancy craving with me. Um, are you calling a friend or texting a friend? I'm calling. Old fashioned of me, right? Nope. I'm into it. Ski holiday or beach holiday? Oh, beach. Who wants to be cold? <laughs> <laughs> And, and where? Where in the world will that beach be? Um, that beach would either be um, the Maldives or Bali. Two very good choices. Um, Netflix or a good book? Oh, Netflix at the moment. And what's your show of choice? Oh, gosh. You haven't heard one of my previous uh, podcasts, have you, for the last couple of years? Um, I've had this obsession since the start of COVID of watching Korean um, soap operas. And I tell everybody that it's really because I'm learning the language. But no, <laughs> it's because there's so many of them. And they're just, they're, they're good. I don't have to think too much. I just watch and I read the subtitles and learn a language. See, it's cheap that way. How's the language learning coming along? <laughs> I could do about a hundred words and I have- oh, I have a friend uh, who's a CTO of a big satellite operator in Korea, and I was practicing on him in Singapore, and he was like, 
wow, how many have you watched? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, more than you probably would ever consider watching. (laughs) I don't watch Indian movies. I'm, I'm, you know, Indian origin, but I never watch an Indian movie. I just happened to come across a Korean drama stuck in Abu Dhabi and during the beginning of COVID. And this is how, you know, um, that's what I'm doing on Netflix. Although, you know, I don't discriminate. I've just watched the second season of Borgen. That was great. Yeah. And if you've seen that one, that's all good. And I love period dramas. So someone has to come up with another Downton Abbey. Like they just have to. Maybe with a Korean flair. Oh, no, Although great way to learn history, don't knock it. Like, I mean, who whoever learned about the Joseon era amongst us in college or school, unless you were trying to do Korean history, you wouldn't have, right? I now know. Very, very, very true and very, very insightful. So, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> uh, we have our final question. I'm going to pass you over to Andrew for that one. So again, this is another question that is always the same for all of our guests. Um, and we always think it's quite a nice one to kind of round everything off with. What one piece of advice would you give to someone looking to enter the industry? Don't give up. Um, I believe that we've got a lot to offer. There are roadblocks in any industry, but the opportunities are immense in our industry. So um don't hang around with the naysayers. Find out the find people who look at you know the glasses being half full, and that's who I surround myself with. I don't have patience for um, the glass half empty people. Perfect, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Tina, thank you so much for your time over the course of this podcast. It's been brilliant getting to know you. Andrew and I have greatly enjoyed ourselves. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and all my crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's been great speaking with you, Tina. Really appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.neuco-group.com. You've been listening to The Tech That Connects Us.